we're coming up on Passover, so I am not in fact going to do today's Torah portion. I want to talk about Passover. Most of you know I didn't come to faith as a little kid. I came to faith as an adult. I was back in the Sunday church, and people kept talking about the gospel and how important the gospel was. And I couldn't find anybody who could explain it to me. I mean, they all sort of said various parts of it, but I couldn't get a coherent explanation, which is what started me on my path of studying Scripture. And my wife has been on Facebook this last couple, three weeks, and one of the things that happens to people who come in the Messianic movement is when you discover that the Torah and the law has not been done away with, but is in fact completely valid and completely enforced for us, you sort of start saying, well, gee, if what I learned in the Sunday church wasn't quite right there, what else is not quite right? And some of them just sort of slide all over the way over into Judaism. And Judaism's not a bad place to be, but that isn't where I am. So the thing they've been discussing is the Passover, what the effect of the Lamb is and what's necessary, and is Yeshua the Lamb of God, which the New Testament says he is, or is this just some Christian fable that has been put together? So what I'd like to do, with your indulgence, is I would like to take the Passover story and without using anything except the Passover story in the Torah, explain to you why Yeshua is the Lamb of God and why his sacrifice is necessary in atoning. So let's start with a couple of concepts, and I'm going to start from the New Testament to let you know where I'm going, and then we'll come back to the Torah and flesh it out. So in John, book of John, on 129, when John the Baptist is at the Jordan River, the next day he saw Yeshua coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what is the Lamb of God, and how does the Lamb of God take away the sin of the world? Those of you who have been in church since you were children have all heard that forever, and it's something that's welded into you, and it's something that's part of your fabric, and, and it's true, by the way. I'm not in any way suggesting that it's not true. It is true, but I would gently suggest that most of you probably haven't examined that. You've just sort of taken it into you, and it's part of your being. The next concept is the concept of being born again. And I'm still in John, and I'm in John 3.3. 3. And Yeshua is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does born again mean? What does it mean to be born again, and how do you get it? And then he goes on in John 3, verse 9, and Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Yeshua answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? So what Yeshua is doing is rebuking Nicodemus for asking a dumb question. And what he's saying is, you should understand this. Since I'm suggesting that Nicodemus didn't have the benefit of the New Testament, Nicodemus should have been able to understand this from the Torah. That's sort of my premise. Now, the events of the Passover are both practical. In other words, spreading the door on the doorpost saves the firstborn from being killed. I mean, that's a very practical kind of thing, because if you don't do it, you die. But they're also highly symbolic. Everything that happens in that chapter of Scripture 
is symbolic and it, and it, it was, many of you have played video games and I, I don't know much about video games. I don't play them very often, but my sons did when they were growing up. And I can remember one of these video games where you're going through corridors and every time you get into a room, all of a sudden something else opens up and you have a whole new level of stuff. And this is kind of like that. I've been studying this now for about two weeks and trying to figure this out. And every time I find something new, it's, oh, wow, I understand that. And then all of a sudden, whoa, that just opened up a whole new room. And I'm not even going to come close to taking you through all the rooms, okay? Uh, just suffice to say that there's a bunch of them. So the three things I want to talk about are the firstborn, the lamb, and the blood. And understand that I'm condensing things a lot because there's a lot more going on there. So first thing, let's talk about the firstborn. In Scripture, one of the major themes is contention among brothers for the right of the firstborn. And very often that contention rises to the level of murder. So the first one of those is Cain and Abel. And oh, by the way, that's the first mention of the firstborn in the Bible. When Abel brings from his flock, what does he bring? He brings the firstborn of his flock. God accepts the offering. Cain gets really upset, goes out and wails on his brother and kills him. Then we have Jacob and Esau. Jacob conspires with his mother to take the blessing of the firstborn that Isaac intended to give to Esau. Esau is so upset that he plots to murder him. And in fact, only by fleeing and getting out of town for the next 20 years does Jacob survive. So the concept of firstborn seems to be fairly important. And oh, by the way, in the Passover story, it says, put the blood on the door to spare the firstborn. Who is the firstborn in this instance? Israel. All of Israel is God's firstborn. I will give you a passage of scripture. Exodus 4. This is God speaking. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve him. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So, first misunderstanding that a lot of people had, in fact, I had until I started really studying it, is you would think that when they're in the house, the only one who's in danger is the firstborn son in the family. That's not true. All of Israel is in danger because all of Israel is a firstborn in this sense. Now, in the case of Egypt, the only ones who are in danger are the firstborn sons in each family of Egypt. But for Israel, it is every Israelite who is in danger because all of Israel, God has declared, is his firstborn son. One of the things that happens in Exodus is God delivers his firstborn son from death and slavery. And so the question you need to ask is, why slavery? What is it that has caused Israel to go down into Egypt and to become enslaved, and how does that apply to us? I will suggest that there's two things. Thing one is the sale of Joseph. And what's the conflict that is involved in the sale of Joseph? The right of the firstborn. Because remember, Joseph is the firstborn of the favored wife, so the question is, who's the firstborn? And daddy gives Joseph this wonderful coat that sets him apart from everybody else. 
And what he's essentially doing is he's saying, Joseph here is my firstborn. So the other ten brothers say no, and they kill him. They murder him. Now, he actually, of course, doesn't die. He gets sold into slavery down to Egypt. But what's happening spiritually is when the brothers say, no, you're not the firstborn. You will not have that blessing. We are going to kill you to get it. The spiritual ramifications of that is, fine, you sold your brother into slavery. Let's see how you like slavery. And so all of Israel then goes down into Egypt and they go into slavery. What's the penalty, if you will, for murder? Death. So I'm suggesting to you that Israel has been sent down into Egypt into slavery and death, metaphorically. And the reason that that happens to them is because they murdered their brother. Now, the other thing that is involved in this is the way Abraham and Sarah treated Hagar. Hagar is the stranger. That's what the word means in Hebrew, ha-gar, the stranger. She's also the concubine of Abraham who bore him Ishmael. Then Isaac is born, and Sarah looks at Ishmael and says, wait a minute, who is the firstborn? The son of a concubine will not inherit. My son, Isaac, is the firstborn. Therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw them out of the camp and they've got nothing except bread on their shoulders and water. And what happens when Israel leaves Egypt? They leave with their kneading bowls and bread on their shoulders, don't they? So what you have is the sale of Joseph and the way Hagar was treated being played out in the Exodus. And that's what Israel is being delivered from. Israel is being delivered from the sin and the consequences of the way they treated their brother Joseph and the way they treated Hagar, the stranger. That's why they're down there in slavery, and that's what they're being delivered from. And what you'll see in the Exodus is all of those things get backed out. But it all revolves around who's the firstborn. That's the thing that sets everything up. So next we come to the lamb. The lamb is very interesting here. So let's go to Exodus. I'll start in 12.2. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And oh, by the way, do we have a reset of time with respect to some event? Yes, we do. We are all living in what is called Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Time got reset at the crucifixion, just like time got reset at the Exodus. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. And in Hebrew, that is the number of souls. So what you're doing is you're taking lambs according to the number of souls in the house. And oh, by the way, the word for number there is an odd odd word. It is not the normal Hebrew word for number. That word is normally translated as covering. In this particular passage of Scripture, it is translated as number. But the meaning of the word everywhere else in Scripture is covering. So what you're doing is you're taking a lamb as a covering for the number of souls in the house. That's the way the Hebrew reads. 
So the idea then of a lamb being a covering goes clear back to Exodus. Then we have a, a confusion. And again, I had never noticed this before. Are we talking about a lamb or a goat? The Hebrew, sin hay, say, everywhere else in Scripture refers to a lamb. That's the normal meaning of the word. And everywhere in Exodus 12, it refers to a lamb, but then it turns around and says, oh, by the way, you can take it either from the sheep or the goats. Young goats are typically called kids. They're not called lambs. So you have this goat that sort of inserted itself in there, just sort of, oh, by the way. Everything else is a lamb, except this little reference that you could actually take it as a goat, which is not a lamb. And that, of course, goes back to the theft of the blessing. When Isaac is blind and Jacob goes in, what does he go in with? Goat meat, right? His mother prepares two goats, and he takes the skin of the goat, and he covers his hand. And when Joseph is thrown in the pit by his brothers, how do they deceive their father? Goat blood on this fancy coat that has been given to him. So goats get insinuated into this. I think the original thing was lambs, but oh shoot, we've got this goat thing going on, so we need the goats in there too. And the lamb, when it is roasted, is roasted in the fetal position. In other words, it is bound up with its head down and its legs tucked up. It's roasted in the fetal position. And you take the blood and you go across the top, you go down the sides, and you strike on the bottom. So what you have then is a bloody door. What I will gently suggest to you, for especially those of you who have children and have been involved in childbirth, we all come into this world through a bloody door. And furthermore, as you come into this world through a bloody door, there is a flush of water. So you are born through blood and water. So we have Israel then behind a bloody door who is going to be born into the world in the morning of the night of the Passover and is then going to go through the Red Sea water. So what you have then in the case of Israel is you have a birth. The nation is born the night of the Passover. The nation goes through the bloody door and into the water. Born again? Reborn? Now, let's talk about birth. I've just mentioned that birth involves blood and water. What happens is you come through this bloody door with a flush of water, and you move then from the world of souls into the world that we live in. And when you die, you go back into the world of souls. So you have these transitions that go back and forth. And what I will assert is that you can only be in one world at a time. You're either in one place or the other. So Israel is either in the realm of sin and death, Egypt, or they are in the realm of life in the world, this birth that we're talking about. I'm going to go metaphysical on you now. Just hang on. It'll be okay. So you can only be in one place at a time. Israel is God's firstborn, right? So a firstborn can only be in one place or the other. So if Israel, God's firstborn, is to be born into the world, what has to happen to the firstborn of the world? has to die. There can only be one firstborn. God has said, Israel is my firstborn. 
and my firstborn is about to be born on the morning of after the Passover. And in order for my firstborn not to be in two places at once, the firstborn of the world, which is Egypt, Egypt is the world, that firstborn dies. Because you can only be in one place at a time. What we have later on, by the way, is another transfer, don't we? Because when we get to the sin of the golden calf, what happens to the firstborn then? God makes a swap, doesn't he? And God says, I will take Levi to be my firstborn. And all of your firstborn, instead of killing them, what I'm going to do is redeem them. And you have to take silver and redeem your firstborn. And what you're going to do is you're going to swap silver for your firstborn, and I'm going to take Levi for my firstborn. So there has to be a swap. And oh, by the way, what is one of Yeshua's titles? The firstborn of all creation, isn't it? So there has to be another swap. We'll get there in a minute. Now, there's a parallel concept. What I've been talking about is the world, physical stuff. There's also the concept of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And what I'm going to suggest to you is the kingdom of God is, to use an engineering term, orthogonal or perpendicular to the kingdom of the world. So you can be in the world or out of the world, and you can be in the kingdom or out of the kingdom, and so you sort of got a cross with four quadrants. You know, you can be in any of those quadrants. So, if you are going to transition from the kingdom of this world, Egypt, to the kingdom of God, I will suggest that the only way to transition from one to the other is through the birth process. So you have physical birth and physical death, which transitions you from this world to the world of souls. And what I will suggest then is you have rebirth, which transitions you from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. Parallel concepts. What I will suggest to you is that the physical thing that you do understand is there so that you can have an understanding of the spiritual thing transitioning back and forth between the kingdom of God. In other words, the physical mirrors the spiritual, not the other way around. And the other thing is, birth is really disruptive. Think about it for a minute. Imagine this little baby, all curled up and tucked up in his mommy's belly, and he's all nice and comfortable and warm and happy, and then all of a sudden, his head gets slammed through a 10-centimeter circle, and he pops into the world, covered in blood and water, and what just happened to me? I will suggest to you, by the way, that the process of physical death that all of us will at some point go through is very analogous to that. We're in this world, and we're nice and comfortable, and all of a sudden, we're going to get slammed into another world, and we're going to, what just happened to me? Just by way of aside, let's go back to Yeshua now. What I've described to you is a process of the transference of being firstborn. It starts off with the normal world, Egypt, if you will. Egypt has a whole bunch of firstborns. Then it goes to Israel. And in that process, the firstborn of Egypt dies in order that the firstborn of Israel can come into existence. So there's a transfer. And then, as I say, we have the transfer of, from all Israel to the Levites, and that involves, instead of death, redemption, the payment in silver. And oh, by the way, what does silver represent in Scripture? Blood. Every time silver is discussed, it's in context of blood. So, let's look at Yeshua. He's an Israelite. So he's part of God's firstborn. I'm going to have to 
shift on you again. Most of you have heard this. We've got some people that are new. There's three orders of priesthood. There's the order according to Aaron, and that's the Levites that we talked about that just got swapped out, if you will, for all the Israelites. And they're a priesthood. So in that swap, they become the priesthood. The second order of priesthood is the order according to Melchizedek, of which there is one member, and that's Yeshua. And then the third order of priesthood is the priest of all believers, which is Yah. And every order of priesthood is perfectly legitimate. They don't conflict. They have three different orders of sacrifice. They have three different venues. So the Levites sacrifice in the temple of the tabernacle, and Yeshua, for example, according to the order of Melchizedek, is not authorized to be there. So he is not priest according to that order. He's a priest according to a different order. And his sacrifice is on the tabernacle in heaven of which the earthly one is a copy. Levites are not authorized to sacrifice at that altar. It's a different venue. We as the priesthood of all believers are not authorized to go into the tabernacle and we're not authorized to go and sacrifice in heaven. We bring the sacrifice of praise. So the first swap of the firstborn gives you Levi, the first order of priesthood. The second firstborn, Yeshua, is another swap, if you will, and that gives you the priest according to the order of Melchizedek, who is able to sacrifice in heaven. The third swap, then, is Yeshua, the firstborn, for whom? Us! That's the third swap. So you have a third swap, and by the way, the firstborn dies, doesn't he? Yes, he does. The firstborn dies, and in that process, there is yet another swap and the creation of another order of priesthood. So, Yeshua is swapped for us, and in that process, then, we become priests. Not according to the order of Levi, and not according to the order of Melchizedek, but according to a third order. And, oh, by the way, at the crucifixion, what happens? Blood and water comes out of his side. We have another birth, don't we? And, oh, by the way, what happens to the special coat that he is wearing? So you have all of the symbols of the Exodus at the crucifixion. It's all there. What I will suggest to you, then, is we have people who don't understand this concept of the Messiah and what it all means. They have grown up in the church and people have just said to them, the gospel, born again, blood of the lamb. And they haven't ever stopped to unpack it so that when they come into Messianic Judaism and they discover, wow, a whole bunch of stuff I got taught in the Trinity Church just isn't quite right. A lot of it is, but a lot of it isn't. And they start saying, gee, what else is not right? And what happens to a lot of them is they say, wait a minute, we don't need this Yeshua guy. I will suggest that you really do. And I will suggest that you should now be able to demonstrate that to any of them from Exodus without referring to the New Testament. Notice, I, I, I mean, I referred to the New Testament just to give you what the sound bites are from the New Testament. But all of this that we have done is from the Torah. It is perfectly sound. There's no confusion. Nicodemus should have, and, and, and Yeshua 
slaps him around. Says, what are you, a teacher of Israel? You don't understand this? You don't understand being born again? You haven't read your Exodus. And oh, by the way, I will gently suggest that Nicodemus is just like a lot of us, grew up with Bible sound bites and didn't really think about it. And don't get me wrong. You can be a perfectly good child of God, a perfectly good citizen of the kingdom, without understanding this. In other words, just because I hope you understand this now, that doesn't make any better anybody else. It simply means that you understand something. And their trust in the blood of Yeshua is every bit as effective as your trust in the blood of Yeshua. So don't get cocky. Let us shine.